welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and his followers from the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective they were originally lived and written in. Today's program is on Mark chapter 14. Our focus is on the trial in the middle of the night. Please get out your Bible and follow along. Why did the Council of Religious Leaders condemn Messiah? According to the Torah, did Messiah do anything worthy of death? What if Messiah had been mistaken about his identity as Messiah? Would he have been guilty of anything worthy of death then? Did the judges at that trial conduct the trial in accordance with the Torah? And in the eternal view of things, who was really on trial at this event? Yeshua or the corrupted religious system of that generation? Stay tuned through to the end of today's program for Eliyahu ben David's insight on these questions in Mark chapter 14. And now, here's Eliyahu. Blessings, friends. Great to have you with us once again. We're continuing to progress through the book of Mark, and we're going to be looking at the trial of the Jewish council and surrounding events. And I think we're going to find this interesting. Well, there's a lot in these verses, and really all of this rotates around this trial of the Jewish council. So I thought I would just focus on that part of it, on the trial. And I think one reason why that gets my attention is that I actually know something about religious trials. When I was much younger, I was, in fact, when I started out in life, I was part of a religion that from time to time, had religious trials of people. And in fact, at a certain point in my life, I was actually appointed as one of the judges of these trials. And to be honest with you, I didn't like that. I didn't enjoy that. And not only that, but the other judges didn't like me because (laughs) they thought I was too lenient 
with people. So, you know, that was not a great experience for me, but I learned a lot from it. And I kind of saw in that how sometimes religious trials brings out some pretty ugly things in the people who are called to be the judges, and including myself sometimes when that happened. And it really puts a person to a test. And as a matter of fact, after Yahweh exposed that religion to me, and I saw that the whole thing was a fraud, and then after that, when he called me into the ministry, I had an interesting experience because I had just simply stopped everything, every connection with that religion. And however, once he called me into the ministry, I started talking to the, some of the people there that were my friends from the years that I'd been in that religion. And I just openly told them the things that I had seen, the things that I had learned and about salvation through Yeshua and my own experience with that. And it wasn't very long after I started talking to them that I actually got summoned to a trial. And the truth is, when that happened, it made me laugh because I, <laughs> I had no respect whatsoever for uh, that whole system. I, so that religion had no hold over me, and I had absolutely no reason to feel pressured to go to that trial. But I decided I would do it for their sake, not mine, as a witness to them. And it's interesting because the judges were, in many cases, the same people that I had sat with as a judge myself in these trials. Some of them, I'm sorry to say, became a part of that religion because of my proselytizing of them. And so it was kind of a strange thing. And I, so I knew all these people intimately and they knew me. And when I walked into this trial, before it even started, the man who was the principal judge, the leader of this trial, started out by saying to me, if this was ancient Israel, you'd be stoned to death. So I knew, of course, I was going to get a very unbiased trial, right? Not. So in my experience, it was in some ways a lot like this trial, only, of course, not as intense, because it's not ancient Israel, and they weren't able to stone me to death. But I had no doubt that if they could have, they would have. That's how virulent they really were. And do you know what they were angry about? After just a few questions and my answers, one of the judges there said to me, he said, you don't really recognize our authority, do you? That's what they were mad about because they had no authority. It was all a sham. It was all a religious sham. But that's what they were really angry about. And I think in the trial we're talking about here, it's very similar, because these judges were judges of a religious system that had become corrupt. And while they claimed authority from God, they did not act 
according to God's ways, God's heart, or God's Torah. And that's the facts. I want to look into that a little bit, and we can kind of see how that is. Well, we're going to pick up this thread regarding the trial when the officers of the court came to seize and arrest Yeshua. So the whole thing, it starts out with Yeshua's betrayal by a friend. And this is so interesting because so many of these trials start this way. You know, Yeshua said that we would be brought before governors and kings for his namesake, and he said that we would be brought before trials. And I'll tell you now, when this happens, it will happen probably because your wife, your husband, your friend, your mother or father, your brother or sister betrayed you. And that's why you're going to be standing there. And when that happens, for most people, that's a very shocking thing to happen. When I went through that trial I told you about, it was the same thing. I was really betrayed by a friend. And that's why I was standing there before the court. That happens a lot. And, you know, it can be a very hurtful thing when you're betrayed. But it helps, you know, if you make up your mind right now that you probably will be betrayed at some point during these last days. And just make up your mind and determine and pray that you will not be the betrayer. Because I'll tell you, in this whole story, this betrayer ends up in a lot worse place than the one that he betrayed. And so it is with every betrayer. So this is how Yeshua came into the hands of the officers of the court. And not a great start, not a great experience. This was immediately followed by Yeshua being forsaken by all of his friends. They all left him and fled. Do you know that this is probably what will happen to you if you are identified as a bad guy, unjustly. Most of the people you know will just assume you must be some kind of a criminal, or at least they'll think, well, you're in trouble, and they don't want any part of the trouble that you're in. So they'll leave you. Now, you might fare better than Yeshua did here. Maybe some of your brothers in the faith will stand by you, and I certainly hope that's what happens. But just think how this would be for most of us. Betrayed by a friend, then all your friends leave you as you are being arrested and taken away. If you have no friends, who's going to help you, right? Who's going to testify in your behalf? Who's going to, in any way, offer you any comfort? You see, that's what can happen. That's what can happen. Yeshua foresaw all of this. He knew this was all going to happen. Perhaps things would have been different if those disciples had prayed 
instead of slept, right? But that's not what happens. And you know, people don't do the ideal thing very often. <laughs> this is kind of what I've seen in these kinds of situations. Well, Yeshua answered these officers of the court, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to seize me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't arrest me. But this is so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Of course, this is true. And Yeshua is the Messiah. He foresaw that this was going to happen. And there's so much in scripture foretelling these events. We're going to look at a couple of things here in a minute about this specifically. But I just think this is a good thought. If And I hope Yahweh will bring this back to your mind if you are ever in a similar situation to this one. This is so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. You see, this is Yeshua's thinking, right? He's always thinking about the scriptures. So he's just been betrayed by a friend, and then all of his friends left him. Rather than being in a pool of pity over what was happening to him, He's thinking about the scriptures. That's what makes you strong, friends. That's why we're doing all this every week, right? So that we train our mind to think in terms of the scriptures. And then in the inevitable moment, when the pressure comes upon you, you can think like that too, right? And as those trials are coming into your life, you can think, well, this is happening because This is fulfilling the scriptures. The scriptures say we're going to face trials. The scriptures say that we're going to be betrayed. The scriptures say that the world will hate us. And that will be a strength to you in that moment, in that hour, understanding that now it's your moment to stand up as a believer And do the things the scriptures say to face those trials as an overcomer. Do you see the difference between having that mindset and the way people normally act? (laughs) Just driven by their emotions, you see? What a big difference. Psalm 41.9 says... Yes, my own familiar friend has lifted up his heel against me, a messianic psalm. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Another prophecy from Zechariah. These things pointing forward to the very events that Messiah was then experiencing. The scriptures, the scriptures were being fulfilled. They led Yeshua away to the high priest. All the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes came together with him. So here you have this prearranged trial. No advance notice in the middle of the night. But they're all ready, right? They all knew what was going to happen. They all knew. This is a secret trial in the middle of the night. 
This is not the way trials are to be conducted, according to the Torah or any other possible laws of justice you could imagine. This allows no time whatsoever to call witnesses, no time whatsoever to arrange any kind of a defense. It's a sacred trial, and what is the purpose of a trial like this? Is this an unbiased trial to try and find the truth? It's obvious from the very beginning what this is about is a perversion of justice. It's a sham trial meant to have a predetermined outcome. That's what it is. Deuteronomy chapter 16 commands Israel, you shall make judges and officers in all your gates. They shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not rest justice and pervert the words of the righteous. You shall follow that which is altogether just. Do you know if we don't do that, don't bother doing anything else. Forget the rest of the Torah. Just go and be a heathen. Because justice is the center of our perfect God. Righteousness is his name. You must be holy because I am holy. When a person is appointed as a judge or an officer in Yahweh's nation, they have a great responsibility because they are representing his justice. His name is attached to them. It is a very great responsibility to be a righteous judge. And what these men had done already, before the trial even started, was entirely unjust, a complete travesty of justice, and totally contrary to the commands of the Torah. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council sought witnesses against Yeshua to put him to death and found none. So it's telling you what they're doing. They're not having an unbiased trial. They're trying to stack the deck so they can kill this man. Many gave false witness against him, and their testimony didn't agree with each other. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another without hands. We know that's not what he said at all. He simply talked about his body as a temple. That's totally erroneous. Then it goes on and says, even so, their testimony did not agree. So these drummed up false witnesses, while they had bad things to say, 
their testimony didn't even agree. What would happen in any fair court with that? Right there, you'd throw the case out, wouldn't you? But they didn't because what was happening is what they wanted to happen. Here's an interesting thing. In Torah law, the judges and the witnesses are on trial just as much as the accused. Trials are a very tricky thing in Yahweh's nation. Why do I say that? Because he insists on absolute justice and righteousness. He says, you shall not bear false witness. Is that not one of the Ten Commandments? And he says, keep far from a false charge. Now, this is to the judges. Keep far from a false charge. And don't kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. What does I will not justify the wicked mean? It means if you do this, I'm going to get you. That's what it means. Vengeance. The vengeance of God against unrighteous judges. Deuteronomy 19 says, The judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness is a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he had sought to do to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from the midst of you. There's so much in these verses because it's saying the duty that judges have to determine that witnesses are telling the truth and that they're not false witnesses. So just doing, you know, a lousy job of that is evil. But what about actually being the one to raise up the false witnesses? Does that then not make you yourself more guilty than the false witnesses? The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Yeshua, Have you no answer? What is it which these testify against you? So here the high priest in the court is accepting this obviously false, contradictory testimony by witnesses they know are false witnesses against Yeshua, while at the same time, not offering him any opportunity to present witnesses in his own behalf. What kind of court is this? This is clearly what you call a kangaroo court, a sham trial. So Yeshua chose not to participate in the sham. He stayed quiet and answered nothing. Gill's commentary says this about his actions, knowing it would be to no purpose and signifying hereby that the things alleged against him were unworthy of an answer. At the same time, Yeshua was fulfilling prophecy, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed. Yet when he was afflicted, he didn't open his mouth. As a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and as a sheep that before its shearers is mute, so he didn't open his mouth. You know, Yeshua 
not answering is so contrary to human nature in this situation. With so much at stake, most people at this point would be trying to impress their innocence upon the judges. And just seeing this and how he acted shows you how totally present he was in the moment. That he was not in any way being pressured by his emotions, but he was in control of his actions, and he was operating according to the scriptures and according to what was right. It's truly amazing to see someone under test like this that can behave this way is amazing. You know, this is one of the things about him that just so impresses me to want to be as much like him as I possibly can be. And yet knowing at the same time that that is really an impossible reach, you know, but nothing else is such a worthy goal when you look at who he is. Well, after Messiah wouldn't speak, the high priest decided to press the case. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Now, this is really interesting. Where did this talk about being the Messiah come from? We remember that Yeshua had forbidden his disciples to even talk about the fact that he was the Messiah, right? We have this in several places as we've been going through the book of Mark, one of them being when Peter had identified him as the Messiah. And then Yeshua commanded them that they should tell no one. And so the disciples had obeyed that. One way we see that they must have is because while it mentions things that were said by the false witnesses here and in the other Gospels, nowhere do they accuse him of claiming he was the Messiah. So the fact that even the false witnesses didn't pick up on this tells you that the disciples really had obeyed and had not said that he was the Messiah. So why had Yeshua done this? This is his wisdom, and in understanding his overall situation and picture, prophetically. Yeshua had forbidden this to be spoken of so that the judges would have to deal with it themselves based on the evidence. You see, they wouldn't be able to point to a witness to say, well, this person says that you claim to be the Messiah. The judges themselves were the ones bringing up the issue. So what does that mean? Well. Since there is no record of witnesses bringing up any messianic claim at trial, and the high priest himself brought it up, this could only mean that the reason he thought of it is because Messiah was doing all the stuff that the Messiah was supposed to do, right? In other words, he and all of them had seen the evidence that Yeshua was the Messiah. That's why they were bringing up the question. Because they wanted to 
justify murdering the Messiah of Israel. Could anybody be that wicked that they would actually know that he was the Messiah and want to kill him? Isn't that what Herod had tried to do? Were they any better? I don't think so. Now, here's another point in this question. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? In Matthew, it gives us more information. We know that Mark kind of goes through kind of quick, right? In Matthew, it says, the high priest answered him, I adjure you by the living Elohim that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of Elohim. So by comparing these, we can see clearly that Messiah, the son of the blessed, means Messiah, the son of Elohim, or the son of God. This tells us something. It's something we can prove other ways. That the Jews in the time of Yeshua Messiah actually believed that the Messiah was to be the son of God. Now, you might wonder, how would they know that? Well, because it's in the scriptures, the scriptures that they knew. For instance, in Psalm 2, it says, The kings of the earth take a stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. The word anointed there is the word Mashiach, the same word as Messiah. So you could translate this either as anointed or as Messiah. And then it goes on in that same psalm, which is a prophecy of the Messiah. And quoting here, Yahweh said to me, you are my son. So here in this psalm, it's showing that Messiah is also the son of God. So they knew this just from the scriptures, that he was the son of God, that Messiah was to be the son of God. One reason I bring this up is because unbelieving Jewish sources today, rabbinical sources, don't really admit to that openly. And they will generally say that believers in Messiah think that he's divine because they have adopted Greek ideas about the Christ, that the Christ is a divine figure. And you'll hear that from some people. You know, there are some sects that say that today, too, like, for instance, the Way and the Jehovah's Witnesses and even the Mormons. But those people are really wrong about the Jews because the Jews did see the Messiah as the Son of God. And another place you can see this is in the Targum. Now, the Targums were books that were written in Aramaic, and they were paraphrases of the Torah, of the book of Isaiah, of other books in the Tanakh. And what happens with the Targums is that the teachers, the rabbis, use some of their own wording in there to help to expand on how they understood those verses 
So by looking at the Targum, you can see what those teachers, and these were the teachers from slightly before the time of Yeshua, so it's what these religious leaders believed in. This was taught in the synagogue. And the Targums present a figure there called the Memra in Aramaic that translates as the Word. Wherever Yahweh is appearing to someone, such as at the burning bush, they say it's the Memra that appeared. So the high priest knew the implications of what he was saying when he said, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? He wasn't just saying, are you claiming to be the king? Or, you know, something like that, some lesser kind of a figure. He was actually asking, are you the Son of God? In other words, are you this divine figure? The Memra, who is actually called Yahweh at the burning bush. This is a huge explosive question that the high priest was asking. In Matthew here, we see that he wasn't just asking a question either. He said, he used this word, I adjure you by the living Elohim that you tell us. Now, in that court, this is technical legal language he was using. He was actually forcing an answer from the Torah. He, he was using Torah law here to force an answer. And I find this so interesting because, of course, we would expect that he understood everything the Torah said about trials. But this kind of proves it to you, that he used this technique. But he was using it the way lawyers use the law today. Instead of interpreting the law according to righteousness and justice, what do lawyers do? We all know this. They use the law, right? Often they twist the law. And that's what this guy was doing. And look at what Leviticus says. If anyone sins in that he hears the voice of adjuration, he being a witness, if he doesn't report it, then he shall bear his iniquity. So the Torah actually makes it a sin if a witness in a court of Israel does not answer when he is adjured by the court. That's the reason why the high priest used that word, I adjure you. Because by saying that, he knew that the accused was required to answer the question, and if he didn't, he was guilty of sin. Was Yeshua Messiah going to commit that sin? He had to answer, right? So he did. Yeshua said, I am. He didn't try to wiggle out of it, right? When it was time for him to answer, he gave the real answer. He said, I am. Is there a double meaning in saying that? Interesting. By saying I am, he could be saying I am the I am revealed at the burning bush. I think that's what he was saying. Some people don't agree with that. But in any case, by saying I am, he is 
admitting to, yes, I am the Messiah, the son of Elohim. He was claiming to be that person. And it came out of his mouth. It didn't come out of the mouth of some false witness. It came out of his mouth. He told the world who he is. You know, some people say that he never claimed to be the Messiah. And when they say that, they show how ignorant they are of the scriptures. Clearly, he did claim to be the Messiah. We have his claim right here. And then he continues on. Yeshua said, I am. And then he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of the sky. Well, what is it that Yeshua is actually saying here? You know what he's doing? He's using a thing we've seen earlier in different places here in Mark and the rest of the Gospels in the way that they spoke in the first century. They didn't have chapter and verses like we do today. And so in their conversations, they would use certain phrases from various portions of Scripture. And when they would cite those phrases, then if you were particularly a person who was a teacher in Israel, that was supposed to bring to your mind the whole story from those verses, right? For example, in one case we saw it, Yeshua had said, the bush. Well, what bush is he talking about? And what we know is he's talking about the whole burning bush story. Well, it's the same here. So he talks about here sitting at the right hand of power. What does that mean? Well, this is a reference to Psalm 110.1, where it says this. Yahweh says to Adonai, Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord that is used towards Yahweh. So a, a lot of Bibles, like in our English Bible, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, or the Lord said to the Lord. It doesn't seem to make sense. Is he talking to himself? But this is who Yeshua was claiming himself to be. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. That's an amazing thing. And this psalm goes on, Psalm 110, to talk about all the things that the Messiah would do. And they know that this Adonai in this verse is speaking of a divine figure. Clearly he is a divine figure. So what is Yeshua saying when he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. It's this very thing, sitting at the right hand of Yahweh as Adonai. He's claiming, yes, I am the person that you're talking about, the Son of God, the Memra, Yahweh at the burning bush, Adonai. Let me spell it out for you. And then he also said, coming with the clouds of the sky. And this is a direct reference to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, 
where it says, I saw with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man. He came even to the ancient of days. And look at this. Dominion and glory are given him, and he rules over everybody. Do you think that's what those guys wanted to hear? Well, yes and no, right? The truth is, when he says, you will see this, he's not telling them you're going to see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of the sky. Obviously, they're not going to see that. They're in the grave. And you'll never see these guys till the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand years. They're not going to see that, not them personally. But if you realize that what he's doing is using these words to refer to the whole story here in Daniel, well, are they going to see the things that are in this story? Are they going to see all the people's nations and languages serving him? Well, when they stand before the great white throne judgment, who are they going to stand before? They're not going to enjoy that day. That's the day this is going to come true for them. The high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need have we of witnesses? Well, tearing his clothes was a theatrical show. And it was not justice. And certainly his statement, what further need have we of witnesses, is not justice. The job of an unbiased court, and we've already seen the Torah demands an unbiased court, is to thoroughly get to the bottom of the truth. If you have a witness who makes a claim, then that needs to be followed through. Is this claim true? And that's what should have happened at this point, specifically since this person is mentioned in Scripture, and Yeshua is claiming to be that person. If this was a righteous trial, what happens next? Well, they say, well, you claim to be this person. Present evidence and prove it to us. However, that would have meant that he could call on any of the thousands of people of whom he had cast out demons, healed them from all various kinds of sicknesses and maladies, and even raised them from the dead. Wouldn't it be great if that had happened and Lazarus came in and said, oh, well, I was dead for three days, and he brought me back to life again. They didn't want that. Did they know about those things? You know they did. So this was theatrics in order to give them an excuse to ignore and overlook all of that evidence of who he truly was and to cut the trial short so that they could get on to what they really wanted to do, which was to declare him to be guilty. Then he says to the court, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be worthy of death. 
Well, did he commit blasphemy? Let's say even that he was mistaken. Maybe he was delusional and he thought he was the Messiah, but he really wasn't. And he said, I'm the Messiah. Would that be blasphemy? Well, Leviticus 24, 16 tells us what blasphemy is according to the Torah, not the English definition of blasphemy, right? The Torah definition, that's what they should be going by because they should be Torah judges. And what we find there in Leviticus is he who blasphemes the name of Yahweh, he shall surely be put to death. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. So blasphemy in the Torah as something deserving death is narrowed down to someone who deliberately blasphemes the name, speaking against the very name of our Father in heaven. That's a very narrow definition. And obviously, they chose to use blasphemy according to a broad definition of their own, not according to the Torah definition of the word that would allow them to condemn him. So once again, they're totally contrary to the Torah and justice in their decisions. Then he says, what do you think? Well, again, at this point, a court should call him to prove his claims. But they didn't, because, again, he had abundant proof, and they didn't want to allow it. So instead of relying on evidence, we're relying on what they thought. And what did they think? Well, all along, they wanted to kill him. That's what they thought. So that's what they said. He's worthy of death. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to beat him with fists and to tell him prophesy. So in other words, they put a blindfold on him so he couldn't see. And then people were hitting him and spitting on him. And they were telling him to prophesy. In other words, okay, tell us which one is hitting you, which one is spitting on you. They were making sport of him while they were abusing him. The officers struck him with the palms of their hands, slapping him. This is meant to belittle him. What about this? Have you ever seen any court of justice that does this? Is this the dignity that you would expect in the court of justice? Even if he was guilty, what would happen? Would he not be sentenced and this would be carried out in an orderly way according to the law? What are they doing here? Well, this is just revealing the reason why this whole trial was happening. They hated him, and now that he had been found guilty by them, they felt free to abuse him and to pour out all of their hatred upon him. And when people behave like that, what are they doing? Are they not disgracing themselves? These people, in doing this and this whole trial, not only disgrace themselves, they really disgrace the whole institution 
that they represented as being completely and totally corrupt and totally outside of Yahweh's ways and his Torah. So when we look at that, we have to ask, who was condemned at this trial? We notice that in the case of Yeshua, whom they tried to condemn, their unjust verdict was overturned by the Almighty when Yeshua was resurrected from the dead. He didn't care much about what that court had to say. It didn't have any authority with him. But what about the court? Well, the court condemned themselves at this trial. And here's some of the points prejudging the case, an unjust secret trial, not allowing for an adequate defense, accepting obvious false testimony, forcing Yeshua to testify to being the Messiah, then not allowing him to produce any evidence, condemning an innocent man to death and physically abusing him in a court of law. Now, you could break this down more, and you'd have even more. And we remember these verses, don't kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. Does that condemn them? You shall do to him as he had thought to do to his brother. Isn't that a curse they brought upon themselves? Because they thought to put an innocent man to death, raised up false witnesses to try to do it, and the penalty for that is what they were going to do to another would happen to them. So really, everyone involved in that court condemned themselves and their entire system to what they had thought to do to their brother, to death and destruction. The just verdict was executed upon that court and that wicked system it represented in 70 A.D. Now, some people might think, well, you shouldn't talk that way about the Jews because that's anti-Semitism. And I would just say to you that there are wicked people of every nationality and ethnicity. And the scriptures report to us very clearly when people who are supposed to be the people of God do wickedly. Yeshua was innocent. He was a Jew. So identifying the innocent and the guilty in any group is not saying that the whole group is bad. It's not prejudicial. It's not racist. It's simply recognizing the facts, the truth. And that's what the scriptures give us, the truth. And we have to come to grips with that because we do know that the children of Abraham have a special covenant with Yahweh. And therefore, like speaking for myself, I have great respect for the nation of Israel today, the state of Israel I'm talking about, and for all the Jewish people that live there. 
and I care greatly about them. And uh, I'm very impressed by all the things that they've been able to accomplish there in that land. And I even see that as a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, that they're there. And I recognize that Yahweh's hand has been with them in so many ways, including their wars against their enemies. I recognize all of those things. And my greatest desire would be to bless them. I would love to be able to bless them in any way that I can. But at the same time, I see that twice now, their system in their own land has been repudiated by Yahweh when their leaders turned away from his ways and entered into the ways of unrighteousness. What we're seeing right now is their third chance. I want to see as many of them as possible do better than what happened before. I want to see them blessed. I want to see them come to know their Messiah. And I certainly pray that they do. You have been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Some of the scripture verses referenced in today's program are Psalm 41, verse 9, Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7, Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verse 18 through verse 20, Exodus, chapter 20, verse 16, Exodus 23, verse 7, Deuteronomy, chapter 19, verse 18 through verse 29, Isaiah 53, verse 7, Mark, chapter 8, verse 29 through verse 30, Psalm 2, verse 2, Psalm 2, verse 7, Leviticus 5, verse 1, Psalm 110, verse 1, Matthew, chapter 26, verse 63, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through verse 14, and Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. Further teachings and study materials on justice in the Torah, Messiah as the Son of God, Targum Isaiah, and other resources that prove that a divine Messiah was not a new Greek idea, how Messiah kept the Torah, how the religious leaders were not keeping the Torah when Messiah came, betrayal, enduring persecution, the organization of the assembly of believers in their day, how these events in Mark 14 fulfill Bible prophecy, and how Messiah continues to fulfill prophecy in our generation, along with many other related topics, can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free. Just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I 
y o n dot n e t. New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Tune in next Shabbat to learn more from Hebraic insights in the Gospels. Shabbat Shalom. To hear you and obey swiftly and without delay, as I read your Torah and Teshuvah, I want to hear you and obey swiftly and without delay, as I read your Torah and Teshuvah. The Christian church system has claimed that Israel is cast off and done away with. However, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35 through verse 37 says, Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then will I also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says Yahweh. The sun is still here. The sea still roars and the stars still shine. Learn how Yahweh's nation Israel is literally written in the stars as a permanent testimony of our God's commitment to His covenant with Israel. Visit our community site Zion Tabernacle and sign up as a free member to view Eliyahu ben David's seminar entitled One Nation Written in the Stars. Now available free of charge as part of Zion Fast Track, our introductory video course. Zion Fast Track will give you the big picture of what God is doing with His remnant nation in this very generation. To sign up and learn more about what other free resources you'll get as a Zion Tabernacle member, go to zion.org and click Join Us. That's T S I Y O N. .org Then click join us I want to hear you and obey swiftly and without delay as I read your Torah and Teshuvah I want to hear you and obey swiftly and without delay as I read Torah and Teshuvah and Teshuvah